Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone you might have seen me repost on Instagram. You'll know her as Clothes Horse, and I think she's sitting at the moment in Austin, Texas. Is that right? That's correct. I moved here three weeks ago. <laughs> so I'm not quite a real Texan yet. I just would say that uh, I currently live in Texas. Maybe in a year, we'll, you can check back in and I'll be wearing a cowboy hat and saying y'all and things like that. But yes, my name is Amanda McCarty. I am the host. I'm the, I am the clothes horse of clothes horse podcast, uh, where you'll see my content on Instagram and I host and do all of the things for the podcast clothes horse. And what is the clothes horse concept? Wow. Uh, it's a little of this, a little of that. No, that's not true. I primarily talk about fashion industry, our relationship with consumerism and how that impacts the planet around us. And so I highlight a lot of small businesses, people who are doing things differently in the industry. I also, because I am a fashion industry veteran, bring in my friends who I've worked with over the years to talk about how their jobs functioned under the fast fashion juggernaut. And that was really what the initial clothes horse concept was, that most people don't know much about the clothing they wear, where it comes from, the process to getting it there, and all the strange jobs that exist along the way to ensure that these companies are as profitable as possible. So I, my, my background is as a buyer. I have done that for almost two decades now, um, moving up the ladder. And I did not know that was a job that existed when I was a teenager or even a young adult. I don't know where I thought clothing, how it got into the stores, but I didn't know there was a someone who picked it out and managed it, negotiated the pricing, all of those things. I just didn't know that that was a job. And I realized that most people don't know any of these jobs exist because this entire industry is cloaked in secrecy. <laughs> so that was the original premise of closed source. Like, let's talk about it. Let's break down how all this stuff works. Because that is really highlighting that the industry is actually an industry and it's a huge and complex thing. So talking about uh, fast fashion is just a tiny little bit of it. And inside behind closed door, clothes doors, <laughs> closed <laughs> doors, clothes door, yep. um, behind the doors that aren't open, there's a whole lot of unsexy type of business stuff going on. So, so much. I mean, I always have a calculator on my desk because – I'm doing so many calculations and plans and looking at spreadsheets. And, you know, my, my career has functioned as basically how can we sell as much stuff to people as often as possible at the highest profit margin? That is what a buyer in just about any industry is doing right now, but specifically in the fast fashion industry. I began my career before fast fashion was the name of the game. And I saw that shift. It's interesting to look back in time and say, wow, we used to just, you know, deliver 20 styles a month. Now we deliver 200. 
You know, like I've seen that evolution and it happened really slowly. And it was really just in the, in the years before the pandemic began that I was able to take a step back and look back and say, wow, wow, the industry was never great to begin with. It was always unethical, but now it's uber unethical. Fast fashion as an idea, that was late 90s with the the Zara guy, was it? It really started to roll out in a bigger way around 2008 during the global financial crisis. And my career in buying began before 2008. I remember how difficult those years of the recession here in the United States were for working in that industry. And I look back and I can see that as the point where we took a left turn in terms of how we were running business. So before 2008, we had Zara starting to come up. We had H&M, a lot of the high street brands that you know from the UK, you know, like Topshop. The fast fashion chain that I worked for was obsessed with Topshop. We would fly to London just to see what Topshop had and see what we could glean from it. And, you know, Forever 21 was starting to come up here in the United States. But they would always hit this wall in terms of growth because the average customer would look at those places, like people in fashion who consider themselves stylish people would look at those places and say, yeah, but it's cheap clothing, right? It's not, it's, it doesn't have any sort of cachet, like true style can't come from these inexpensive fast fashion brands. And then the 2008 financial crisis hit and suddenly people had less money and the fashion industry as a whole found themselves having to put everything on sale to sell it to anyone in the immediate aftermath. And everybody got hooked on deals. And suddenly, our perception of how much clothing should cost became very skewed. And that was just the beginning because then fast fashion was able to swoop in there and say, hey, guess what, everyone? We have cheap clothes for you all the time. Right. And the brands that wouldn't have considered themselves fast fashion before that were suddenly in a pickle. Could, should they lower their prices to be in line with someone like Zara or HM or Forever 21 and risk damaging their brand? Or could they continue to price things at the same prices they'd always been using, but just always have them on sale or promo? And that was, that was the lane they took, right? Like, so the price tags in the store show the same prices, but the average price that the customer was buying them at would be a half or 75% off that price. They had to engineer product that was really profitable at half or 75% off that price. And so ultimately, all the product, whether you were shopping at Forever 21 or Anthropology, was the same product being made under the same circumstances of the same fabrics for the same price. And that's kind of where we are now, right? Where even brands, retailers that we don't think of as fast fashion are selling us fast fashion. They've adopted this model of as cheap as possible, as often as possible, as much as possible. I guess it comes down to if everyone else is doing it, why shouldn't we? I mean, to stay competitive, I... The company that I worked for in the, in the, just the peak, or I guess maybe the nadir of the recession here in the United States is most definitely a fast fashion brand, has always been, but maybe didn't identify that way. And we definitely would look at places like Forever 21 or H&M and say like, Oh, we're far more premium than those brands. We're never, 
we're never going to play in the pool that they're in. But then suddenly we realized our sales were just like plummeting because our customer was like, I see similar stuff at Forever 21. I see similar stuff at H&M. Why wouldn't I go buy it for half the price? And we were scrambling. We tried taking things down just a little bit in price. It didn't really work. We tried elevating the price a lot and saying, oh, we're so much more premium. Well, no one bought that either. And so then we said, okay, we'll go back to how we were pricing everything. We'll just always sell it on sale. We'll plan that at least three quarters of the product that we are selling will sell on sale. That's a scary tactic to use as well, because once you're known for always having it on sale, I don't think you could ever successfully pull out of that again. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've seen here in the United States particularly, and I'm sure you have examples in the UK as well, brands that had, you know, companies, department stores that had been around for generations go out of business or be very close to it over the past decade because their customers became addicted to sales. And it just wasn't working from a financial perspective. You know, we saw Sears go out of business here. Macy's is hanging on by a thread. A lot of other department stores here who had, we thought, I think, would be around forever have gone away because their customers became addicted to deals and there was no way to ever sell anything at full price again. Right. And of course, if the companies are always aiming for growth and the customers always want deals, that's kind of a perfect storm for fast fashion. It really is. And so what I would find is that we were pressing the factories to go cheaper and cheaper in terms of cost. And we were substituting fabrics. We saw a huge shift, and this is industry-wide, worldwide, into synthetic fabrics, which, you know, poly blends, which are plastic, are significantly cheaper than you know, organic fabrics like cotton, bamboo, et cetera. And so more and more clothing was coming in that was synthetic because it was so much cheaper. It could be treated to look a little bit more like nicer fabric sometimes. It took color better. It was easier to make something look expensive that wasn't expensive. And that was that was something we would say all the time around the buying office, like, ooh, that looks expensive. The conceit being that, of course, it was not expensive, and we were creating this facade of of expensiveness. And so, you know, we substituted into cheaper fabrics, and we started to strip away the details in the clothing we were selling because it's a lot less expensive if you take out the pockets or the zippers or you stop putting a lining in everything. Uh, if you make all the skirts just one inch shorter – it doesn't sound like a lot of savings, but if you're making 10,000 skirts, that's a lot of money you're saving right there. So overall, the product became fake expensive, but really terrible. Uh, not a great value for the customer. We cut out a lot of the expenses along the way in terms of refining fit. We just would say it's close enough. It, another phrase we like to throw around was, it'll fit someone with a little bit of an awkward laugh, right? Uh, mm. Because we, could, we couldn't afford to take the time to bring in a fit model, put it on them, take the notes, send it back, do another sample. We just had to take it as it was our bu- because our budgets were slashed in order to remain profitable by selling everything on sale. So the product's just not that great. You know, we're selling it at this fake price. And 
On top of that, we're really squeezing factories, which means we're squeezing workers out of fair wages. Ultimately, I think fast fashion, you know, there the silver lining of it is that uh, people who didn't have access to style or trends before did. And we see that on, you know, with the rise of Instagram at the same time. I think that fast fashion and Instagram are like the chocolate and peanut butter of making lots of money because I don't think that fast fashion could have grown the way it did if it hadn't been for Instagram. That's the only silver lining I can see that it was great for Instagram and people getting to have more style. But ultimately, everything else about fast fashion has been a bad deal for consumers, workers, and the planet. And of course, Instagram is a sort of infinite supply of free models and PR. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, sh I saw a shift in my career where, you know, before we had a PR department that would be sending out samples to magazines all the time. Like, can we be in the magazine? Or, okay, now the magazine has a blog. Can we be on the magazine's blog? You know, like, what can we do to get in there? And then there was a moment where we said, hey, we don't do that anymore. We just send things to influencers or give them gift cards. That was the end of it. Our, and it was cheaper for us, actually. We needed less of a team to do that. We were practically this prod product we were giving to these influencers cost us so little. It was far less expensive than the way we were courting magazines in the past. And we slashed all of our marketing budgets and just said, we're going to focus on getting people to wear our clothes on Instagram. And that was every company I've worked for. We just no longer thought about magazines or you know, having our clothing in a film or anything like that as important anymore. It was way faster, easier, and cheaper to just get someone on Instagram to wear it. And we did it constantly. And of course, now we also see people on Instagram who've just bought the clothes, tagging the maker, begging to be reposted, and will continue uh. to do so if they're just occasionally given a, a bone. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I have gone on some really weird deep dives with certain brands out there that I I've wondered who their customers were. Like Shein is an example of, you know, this is like ultra fast fashion. I wanted to figure out who was wearing Shein, see, you know, what's the cross section here? Is there a commonality? And the answer is no, it's, it's everyone. Uh, but the sheer volume of people who were buying huge boxes of clothes and posting it on Instagram and, you know, tagging the brand, getting that affection from the brand and all of their followers unsolicited. That was their own money and their own time. And I find it so interesting that so many people are willing to do basically free labor for these brands that, you know, why? What's the, what's the give back there for them? Well, I think it's, as you say, uh, they get a little love from the brand, <laughs> uh, which they can then repost again to show that, oh, the brand likes me. They think it's I'm true. cool. <laughs> This is very true. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, human beings are, in that respect, very, very simple. They are. They are. We all want that affection. I get it. I mean, we're we're people on the internet as well. We know. <laughs> yeah. Now, I was going to get into it later, but you mentioned it now, Sheen. Now, that is oh. a relative newcomer in the fast fashion scene, I believe. And whilst the previous bad boys have been Zara... Uh, H&M, I think, like to see themselves as a little more premium, but are basically the same fast fashion. But Sheen has a completely new way of working. 
Yes. And Sheehan has been around for a while. I remember there was a rash of very entertaining blog posts, articles a few years ago, all across, like from BuzzFeed, Jezebel, anything in between. People who would order things on Shein and get it and how absurdly, comically different the item would be from the photo. And at that point, Shein was literally just scouring the internet for stealing photos from other fast fashion brands, putting them on their site, selling stuff for half of those fast fashion prices. People would buy it. They'd be very disappointed. I thought Shein's going to hit a wall where they can't sell to customers anymore because the whole internet will know now that they're selling knockoffs of fast fashion that are don't fit and are disappointing. But somewhere along the line, they got their ducks in a row and they've turned into this massive juggernaut. No one knows exactly what their revenue is because they're a Chinese-based company. They're privately owned. They're not required to report it. Analysts, people who I trust, I would say, speculate that probably last year it was about 10 to $12 billion in revenue. That's billion with a B. That's a huge business. So what they're doing, and it's all shaded, shrouded, I should say, in secrecy. Like We don't really know per se, which is why it's concerning. It seems that they are now designing or at least taking their own photography, creating stuff themselves, and selling it factory direct to people. Uh, the conceit there is that because they don't have stores, because they don't have, like, they're not buying stuff wholesale, like they're going factory direct, that the costs are so low. I don't know if a lot of customers realize that when they're shopping it, but that's basically the argument for why these clothes are so inexpensive. And they sell direct to the customer. I think it takes a few weeks to get it because it's often coming from China. Uh, the the prices are so low that they make H&M and Zara look highly expensive. And so people are encouraged to not buy two or three items at a time. They're encouraged to buy 10 or 20. And what this has turned into is a phenomenon of Shein haul videos on TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram, where someone will buy a huge box of Shein, do the unboxing, on social media and and people love it. I if you go check out the hashtag Shein on Instagram and see these videos and see how excited everyone is to watch these, how it encourages them to go buy things from Shein. I mean, Shein is taking over the world thanks to everybody's desire to just buy big boxes of things and show it to other people. It's very very interesting to me. Uh I, people periodically reach out to me and say, like, I've never heard of Shein. And I'm like, well, then you're not spending enough time on social media because it is everywhere. Uh, the brand, the old school fast fashion brands, they, they're old timey now. They're antiquated. They don't have the Shein mystique. Uh, they don't have, people aren't excited about them. You can't buy a haul from Zara. And so these fast fashion brands that have brought, great negative consequences to our planet and its people are now being outpaced and outsold by Shein, who is making even cheaper stuff, even faster, probably under very poor factory conditions, meaning the workers are really suffering to get that stuff there. Uh, they've been unable to prove that there isn't forced labor in their supply chain. 
on top of that, people are buying 20 things at a time they don't need and will barely wear. And so I find Shein very scary. The fact that Shein is eclipsing all these other fast fashion companies is very scary. And it really doesn't bode well for the future of fashion, of our shopping, and of our planet. It's I get very upset when I see Shein haul videos because my head goes to all, I see all the ramifications down the road. The strange thing is that they're kind of getting a free pass because uh, I read an article about them just out of interest and I talked about it to a friend of mine who is likewise concerned about the garment industry and how things are going and he mentioned that his daughter shops with Sheen mm-hmm. because they have an app and I said, well, have you read this article? They're really, really shit. And, she says, and he says, well, she can buy stuff with her own money. And that, to him, sort of legitimized it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people of all ages are buying from Shein, but definitely I would say it's Gen Z that is really, really their customer base right now because the prices are so low. I, I remember back in the early days of Forever 21, you know, friends would say, we'd go out, they'd be wearing some dress, they'd be like, oh, your dress is really cute. By the end of the night, the zipper had fallen out or it had ripped up the back and something, you know, someone had spilled many beers on it. And they would say, oh, whatever, it was just from Forever 21. You're only supposed to wear it a couple times anyway. I'm just going to toss it. And that is exactly the mentality around Shein. It's like, well, it's really cheap, so it's of no consequence. These clothes are highly disposable, except... They're not really disposable, right? Like they're primarily synthetics. They're going to sit in the landfill for centuries. They're using up value res- valuable resources to be both made and shipped to us. And we just tend to, s- we, we have to get out of this mindset of it's inexpensive. Oh, but my daughter can buy it with her own money. Or, well, I can buy a lot of clothes at once. We need to move away from all of those things take a step back and think like, what's our lifelong relationship with this garment? What's going to happen to it? Because we've definitely lived through, I would say, 15 years now of people saying, well, it was only $5, so whatever. And the the landfills across the world are filled with tank tops that were worn one time, you know, and going out dresses that were shredded after one party. And Clothes shouldn't be like that. They shouldn't be something that is in your life for just like a brief period and then gone and replaced. Totally not. And uh, what, what you were saying there is very important, the way garments don't sort of just cease to exist. <laughs> right. Even though you don't want it, it will live on somewhere, possibly for an enormous amount of time. And, of course, a lot of the, the cheap garments are made of various fibre mixes that I know some of the fast fashion places are researching how to um, how to extract the various fibres from the cloths again. But that's not really scalable technology. So you do have all these non-recyclable clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk let's talk about the myth of clothing recycling because I too have fallen for this myth. So I remember for years I was seeing that H&M was developing this technology. I would literally see bins in the parking lot at Target that said clo- textile recycling. I was like, "Oh, well, that's great. Like I I'm going to put 
the clothes that I no longer want in there because they're going to be recycled into something else, right? And I had a vision that, you know, a dump truck would pull up to a fact, to a factory, a warehouse. It was just a mountain of all of our unwanted clothes, right? And they would dump all the contents through a chute. And there would be all sorts of conveyor belts and machines inside that we can't see. But then on the other end, a little window would open and a roll of fabric would pop out or perhaps a new shirt or something like that. Like that's, that's what clothing recycling sounds like. That's a whimsical version of saying like, oh, we take the clothes, we chop them up or whatever, and then we turn them into other clothes. And I had that illusion for years. And I want to say about four years ago, I was working for a client in the Pacific Northwest who fully upcycles all kinds of amazing stuff into really nice bags, clothes, and whatnot. And they hired me to create a closed-loop apparel line for them, meaning fully recycled fabric, clothing made out of fully recycled fabric. I was like, this is going to be fun and easy, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so we get the swatches from the factory that is making, at that point, probably the best recycled fabric option. It's polyester because uh, it's the easiest to recycle even polyester can only be recycled once, so it's not a solution. And it turns out that you can't make any fiber or any fabric, I should say, out of fully 100% recycled fibers because polyester in particular degrades so fast that if you made a garment only out of recycled polyester, it would sort of just fall apart as you wore it because the fibers are breaking down. So you're always going to have to add virgin fiber to it, whether it is a little bit of cotton, whether it is more polyester, et cetera. So there's always going to be new fibers required. And can I just tell you, this fabric was so hideous. Uh, it was, <laughs> it was orange for the most part, but had every color of the rainbow sort of woven into it because it's really difficult to remove the, the color from synthetic fibers. They're sort of just like, on there forever. I said, does it come in other colors? And they said, well, we can over dye it, but it will always be a little bit orange. Okay. How does the fabric feel? There are people out there who love orange. Maybe we can make this work. Horrible. It felt, <laughs> it felt like you might use it to polish your car. Like maybe that would be okay. <laughs> and I was like, well, wait, I thought we've been recycling textiles all the time. I haven't seen this hideous orange fabric anywhere. I've bought things with a tag on it saying it was recycled. Like, what? what's really going on here? And, you know, I talked to some experts and they said, you know, actually, the technology for recycling, fib for fiber to fiber recycling, meaning taking one fabric, just some, you know, breaking it apart and turning it into another fabric, it doesn't really exist right now because no one's been funding it. And this is kind of like as good as we've gotten right now. When you buy anything that says it's made of recycled materials from a clothing perspective, odds are very high that it's actually made from recycled plastic bottles. Even when we recycle plastic bottles into clothing, uh, we still have to add brand new materials because, like I said, plastic degrades. That's why it can only be recycled once, maybe twice on a good day. So there always has to be an additional fiber added to stabilize it. And so... Even clothes made of plastic bottles are not a license to go out and buy as many new clothes as you want and barely wear them. But it's important for us to know that clothing recycling doesn't really exist right now. 
when we see clothing recycling being tossed at us, like H&M, you can take in a bag of your clothing and they will give you a little discount code to buy new clothing. What H&M is doing to that clothing is either destroying it or selling it off where it often either ends up in a landfill, shredded into other products, or sent to countries in the global south where it becomes their burden. Clothing recycling just does not exist right now. You know, H&M unveiled that loop machine. Was it like a year or two ago now? They have one. It's a machine in a store. It can take a garment. I want to say it takes seven, eight hours for it to turn one very specific garment. Takes a long time, yeah. Yeah. One very specific garment into another very specific garment. That is not scalable when we consider the billions of garments that are being made and bought every year. There is no solution right now. Now, I think we could get there, but we need government policy to force companies to invest and engage in this product development. We're not there right now. Don't be tricked. And then we need to make garments that are intended to be recycled the same way that cars now are made to be recycled. Exactly. And we could get there, but there are a lot of obstacles right now. Like, for example... You know, most fabrics that you wear, whether they are a natural fiber or synthetic, are a, bl- a blend, right? When we get into polyesters, synthetic fabrics, they're all blends in one way or another because retailers will add just a little bit of natural fiber in there to make it more expensive seeming, right? Or feel. What we've learned in the past 10 years, I would say, is that customers don't care about what the fabric is that you sell to them. They care about how it feels, hand feel. And so we have scammed everyone by just throwing a little bit of this in there. Like it's 99% polyester, 1% cashmere or something like that, you know, to get people to come in and say, oh, this feels so nice. And so there's, as a result, there's this infinite range of blends out there. And that makes recycling even more difficult. If we had policies in place that said, here are the 20 blends you're allowed to use. That's it. It would make recycling a little bit easier if we had that forethought where the product was created about what it could become next. It would change the products we were buying in the first place. And of course, synthetics can be made to look and feel terrific. I see Mm -hmm. how many people are walking around in Patagonia fleeces, which are polyester. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sweaters and fleeces are so interesting to me because, you know, the classic go-to is, the oh, I want a wool sweater. I want a cashmere sweater. Uh, one of the categories I bought for a few years was sweaters. And, you know, my mind would go to, well, people would probably really like a nice wool sweater. It'll be warm. It'll last a long time. It'll be breathable. Every time I brought in a wool sweater, no one would buy it because it didn't feel – it turns out people think they like wool, but they don't. Because they want something soft and like cozy. They want Patagonia fleece. They don't want wool. And so what we would do is just create these fabrics, these yarns that were primarily acrylic, blended with polyester. Maybe we'd put a little wool in there just for some texture. But we found we could only put a tiny amount of wool in there and have people still want to buy it. Uh, people don't care about the label that set the content at all. And Cashmere is another one where people are like, oh, I want cashmere. Oh, it's so luxurious. It turns out the majority of customers are going to say, I'd rather have a sweater than tw- for $20 that's made of whatever than a really nice cashmere sweater for $200. And so 
we slowly were blending cashmere in with polyester to get people to buy those sweaters as well. We as customers, we have work to do on our end too, to change what we think of as a desirable garment, what the qualities are that we want from them and change our relationships with what we buy. You know, that maybe, maybe it's better to buy that really nice sweater that you're going to have for 10, 20, 30 years than this $20 sweater that feels cozy and nice, but is going to be a pile of pills and holes in a few months. So I think there's a complicated relationship there. Like we need to work on ourselves as well as working on the industry. This is where I meet a bit of a brick wall because trying to persuade people Mm. to do so, how on earth do you do it? I mean, the way I see it, um, tell an interesting story, make people aware of the qualities. Uh, It makes financial sense to buy one sweater, not 25. But at the end of the day, it's like you say, people just want a deal. And that polyester sweater feels so cozy. Yeah, uh, it's it's really, really hard. I hit walls constantly. Um, I would say the bulk of the unpleasant messages I receive on Instagram are from people who think I'm being unfair and by asking people to think about changing their habits. Um, and I, I get it. We, we live right now in a time where we are rewarded by constant new outfits, by constant change, by constant shopping. And we're literally rewarded by the other people in our lives, right? Like, if you post, look at this cute new outfit I got from Shein, and all your friends are like, oh, you're so beautiful. You look so great. Hashtag goals, that kind of thing. Your brain says, let's do that again next week, you know? And we have to work as individuals to unpack our relationship with shopping, with this constant flow of newness, with the validation we get on social media. And we also need to work to help those around us unpack and break free from that as well. And I I really feel that those of us who are really passionate about making a change we need to, and I'm gonna. I I totally. I'm about to use a phrase that I totally stole from a performance review, uh, a performance review form from a job I had, which is that we need to lead by example. We need to show the world, the people around us, that you can have a happy, rewarding, super stylish, full, highly social, if that's what you want, life while also buying less and wearing things over and over again and building your own personal style. I think we have to demonstrate on Instagram, we have to be proud outfit repeaters. We have to talk about why we aren't shopping from Shein because we have so much influence on the people around us. That's really how Instagram fed the fast fashion juggernaut, right? Because it said, here's just people you know or you feel like you know on Instagram wearing a new outfit from us every day. And we got into the mindset of like, okay, I can't be seen in the same outfit twice on Instagram. I need a new dress for every wedding or event or my birthday. I need a whole month of outfits for my birthday. All of these ridiculous tropes, when you say them out loud, they're ridiculous. We've all been in that mindset for years because we're mimicking other behaviors that we saw on Instagram from people around us. And I think 
those of us who are ready for this change can lead, we can influence, we can be influencers in a new direction. Be positive influencers and not. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I see it's often mentioned that, well, what about the people who can't afford anything other than fast fashion? I think that's interesting. So this is this is one of the things I receive a lot. And, you know, just for some background for me, I'm probably the wrong person to send a, berate, a berating nasty message on Instagram about me being totally unaware of the struggles with pe- of people with less money because I actually grew up very poor. I come from a really small town. I uh, I'm definitely the most the wealthiest member of my family for what that's worth. And I struggled for a really long time. And I'm going to tell you that when you don't have a lot of money, you don't buy a lot of new clothes anyway. I think that a lot of us think we have less money than we do. And if we took a step back and said, wow, you know, I only made $24,000 last year, but I just looked at my bank account and I gave 8000 of that to Sheehan we would see that maybe that wasn't the best choice, that actual people who are struggling to get by aren't out there shopping all the time. We don't need to protect fast fashion for them. As a person who has lived paycheck to paycheck more of my life than not, I was a single parent for a very long time. I really struggled. I didn't buy new clothes very often. What I had I wore and wore and wore again. I wore, I would wear the same pair of jeans for a year straight, mending them along the way to keep them going. I bought secondhand. I only had a little bit of clothes hanging in my closet. I don't remember it as a sad time in which I felt unstylish or unappealing or like my life was falling apart because I had barely had new clothes. Like honestly, if you don't have a lot of money and you can't afford anything beyond fast fashion, you're not thinking about how you need new clothes all the time and therefore need fast fashion, if that makes any sense. There have always been affordable clothes. Fast fashion did not become this hundreds of billions of dollars juggernaut because poor people were buying clothes. It was because middle class and upper middle class people were buying so many clothes all the time. like going to the store and leaving with a huge sack or two sacks of 20 garments, you know, like that's, that's how it happened. Fast fashion builds a business because we're buying hauls, not because poor people needed a new shirt for work. And I think we need to stop saying that we want to preserve fast fashion so that people with lower incomes have access to clothing because we're saying that, but really we're hiding behind that. And we don't want to give up access to an unlimited supply of clothing. That's, that's the real issue. And I have no, pro- I, listen, someone's going to listen to this and be very angry at me and send me a message after they listen to this episode. And that's okay. Cause we can talk about it. I'm not changing my stance there. There have always been affordable clothes for, for people with lower incomes. I definitely was never naked growing up and I looked pretty cute too. I look at pictures. I had great style. I didn't have a mountain of new clothes every week. That's where the problem lies. It makes me wonder if it's um, something that the marketing machine of fast fashion has put out there as an excuse. I do wonder because it's one, it's the, it's the excuse that's thrown at me so often, like more than anything. I mean, the other thing I will say about fast fashion is that 
the fastest, cheapest brands have also had the sense to offer more sizes. And I am far more sympathetic and concerned about how other clothes that are made ethically, sustainably are not offered in size ranges. To me, that's a valid argument. I get that you might have to shop from Shein or Forever 21 because no one else has your sizes. No one should feel guilty doing that. But you don't need to buy a box of 20 items every month either. No one does, right? (laughs) Quite. Um, Now, you did mention something about um, secondhand clothes, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I mean, you've got vintage, you've got just secondhand, you've got – but there are mountains and mountains of existing clothes out there, some of them actually even good quality. Yes, yes. And where have they all got to? Could we just stop making clothes for a year or two and (laughs) use up some of the surplus? What do you think there? I mean, I love this idea that we say, okay, everyone in the world, no new clothes will be manufactured for one, two, three years because we've got plenty because we really do have plenty. You know, every year the industry is producing billions of garments that never even get sold because they're overproducing um, because it's cheaper to make a lot more of things than less, believe it or not. And so we already have plenty of stuff out there that's never even been worn by a person. Uh, right now, a, another substantial chunk of clothing is being sold on sale to begin with uh, because there's still too many offerings out there in terms of new clothes. And th- the mountains of clothing that already exist in this world that are perfectly wearable or reusable or upcyclable is is confounding to me. You know, Thrift stores receive far more product than they could ever sell. And so a lot of that ends up getting shipped overseas where it becomes someone else's problem or shredded up for industrial use. We live in a golden era of secondhand availability with Poshmark and Vinted and Mercari, eBay, Etsy, people selling on Instagram, thread up on and on and on. There are so many amazing ways to buy secondhand clothing right now that didn't even exist five years ago. And I've had such interesting conversations with people who have were early adopters of a lot of these secondhand apps. And they say like, yeah, I would go, I would go onto the Madewell site and I'd see a pair of jeans that I really liked. I would go to Poshmark and type in the name of those jeans and they were already there for sale secondhand. And we kind of live in a time where if there's something very specific that you want, you could probably have it delivered to your house in the next week secondhand. I I can't encourage people enough to shift to a secondhand first way of life because not only is it uh, you know better for the planet, it's often far more affordable. Like the friend who said, I see a pair of jeans on Madewell. I search for them on Poshmark. I find them right away. She wasn't doing that because she wanted to save the world. She just wanted to save money. She'd say, like, often these jeans were worn once or still have the tags on them, and they were half the price. Why wouldn't I buy them there? And I was like, yeah, that's that's a that's a great motivating factor, actually. Like, go for it, you know? And I think that we have so many options out there now that we don't have to settle even when we're shopping secondhand. You know, there was a time... If you wanted to shop secondhand, you could go to a thrift store, you could go to a vintage market, 
there were, it, it was very labor intensive. And now you could lay in bed in your pajamas and find a new pair of jeans online that are secondhand. So I always preach for the side of shopping secondhand first, which is looking for it secondhand before you buy it new. It has an added benefit that I have found. We do an awful lot of impulse shopping and actually a lot of uh, the web interfaces, the user experiences for a lot of these fast fashion platforms are designed to get us to shop impulsively. If you have to take the time to search for an item online secondhand, I would say there's a great chance that the next day you might say, you know, I didn't really want it anyway. (laughs) So it sort of gives you that cooling off period to prevent you from impulse shopping as well. It's an added benefit. I think uh, if uh, websites um, had to have another feature, that would have helped enormously. And that feature would be once you've uh, gone through, uh, selected your stuff, you've paid for it, and you get the mail saying it's shipped, then they could wait 24 hours, send you a new email and said, did you really want it? We can cancel it (laughs) free of charge. Absolutely. So another thing that I've seen play out during my career is the shift into shopping online for clothing. Clothing was sort of the last category to become super popular shop online because people, I mean, we would do all this consumer insight surveys, like, why don't you buy clothes online? And they were like, well, I want to see it in real life. I want to try it on. We saw a lot of resistance there. So we did things like free returns and free shipping and all these other things to incentivize people to just try it on at home. And what we found is that about half of the things people bought from us online were being returned. So it really speaks to, I mean, a myriad of problems, right? But a big part of it being a lot of impulse shopping, like, oh, if I just add one more top to my cart, I'm going to get free shipping, I better do that. And so we get people buying a lot of things that they didn't really want. When they arrived at the house, they realized, I don't want these anymore. I've realized something quite interesting recently, uh, with regards to online shopping versus going to a shop. And that was if I went to a shop and actually inspected something, felt it, tried it on, and then I had to actually pay for it, I was much less inclined to buy it. But if I can just say, click, buy, pay, it's so much easier, scarily so. It is, it is. I mean, I've I've been in a store with something in my hand. Like, I like this, I'm going to buy it. And then I see that there's a long line and I don't feel like waiting. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, I didn't really want it that much. And I put it back. And shopping online has eliminated that, right? There's never a line. There's never the walking around the store, seeing it in different lights or holding it up to yourself one last time. And it's allowed us to overconsume so much more. I, when I was much younger, I worked retail and we would be very busy all weekend long. And on Mondays, we would just have this influx of people making returns from things that they had impulsively purchased that weekend that they realized they didn't have the money for or didn't want or, you know, whatever. And we would always laugh about how Mondays were like returns day, the day of remorse, we would call it, because all of these, it would just be one after another, you know, a young woman coming in with a huge bag of stuff and returning the whole thing all day long. And I think if you, for that volume of impulse shopping to happen then, and I want to say our return rate at that point was 5%. It was very low. 
that sounds like a lot of stuff coming back. But then we look back at 5% and we're like, we'll never get there again because now we're at 50. You know, like that speaks to the sheer volume of impulse shopping we're all doing right now. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. I want to follow up on that, but I also want to sh- just one final point on the online shopping with regards to the sneaky way that if you have put stuff in your cart now and not checked it out, they'll wait a day and send you a mail oh. saying, you've got stuff in your cart, do you want it? And if you don't reply, they'll send you another mail the day after. That is nasty. It is bad. I just want to shout out that Uniqlo is one of the worst for that. In 2019, I put a pair of pajama pants on my in my cart on the Uniqlo website. <laughs> and I have been receiving emails about those pajama pants since then. <laughs> Well, they're persistent. They're persistent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you did say about returns and 50% returns on online. Now, I know you've made a point of this in a previous podcast, but that return shipping, which is free to you as a consumer, and they were sent to you free in the first place. Now, clearly, free shipping doesn't really exist. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Free shipping is kind of one of my favorite myths to dismantle. Uh, Still a lot of people out there believing in free shipping. And I always ask everyone to like take a moment and think about how that thing you bought got to your house, your apartment, your office, wherever. Um, We haven't, we haven't invented teleportation yet. So clearly it, it, it was at the very least on a truck an airplane, multiple trucks touched by many people. And to really think about like when you press pay on the website and you get the email saying like, oh, your order has been submitted. Okay. What's happening to that product? Well, someone in the warehouse goes and finds it. They pull it down. Paying that person to go find that product costs money, right? They bring all the things up to the front. They pass it on to another person who packages it up. So there we've got some more money spent on the packaging and the person who's packaging it. It all gets stacked up on a pallet. At the end of the day, UPS or FedEx or the USPS, whoever it is, shows up, backs the truck up, they load up pallets. The people who loaded up those pallets, they had to get paid too. Now UPS, USPS, whoever's delivering the stuff for you, that truck driver has to get paid, right? The truck has to be maintained. The fuel for the truck has to be purchased. It goes to a, a hub, where it's sorted out by a ton of other people in a big expensive facility, all of that costs money. And ultimately, it might take a few more truck or airplane trips before it arrives at your house. The final person who delivered that, they also need to get paid too. And you start to see like, wow, shipping costs money. And I do think there is this belief out there that when a company or a maker offers you free shipping, it's because they somehow got the shipping for free. And I'm sad to say, that that is just so not true because US, UPS, FedEx, all you know, DHL, none of these services operate for free and they most certainly charge the company that shipped that stuff the money. Now, corporations, big companies are able to negotiate and leverage for better pricing 
on shipping. But let me tell you, as a person who's had to be a part of these conversations, uh, it is it is not that much of a discount. It's very expensive. And it actually, for a long time, has been very painful for smaller companies. I worked for a startup that, you know, we, we were bringing in about $20 million in sales. It's not a, that small of a business. We could only afford to offer free shipping one day a year because it was so devastating to our bottom line. Now we see that that's the expectation all the time. And then, of course, the reverse logistics of shipping it back when you don't want it anymore. And this is a big expense for retailers. So how are they covering that? Well, they haven't said, you know what, guys, shareholders, we're just going to make less profit this year. No, they have taken out those costs in other ways. That includes cheaper product, right? Uh, the buyers are being pushed into br- delivering even higher margin product to cover that shipping. It means cutting benefits to all of their employees, whether that's healthcare or vacation time or salaries. It means for the warehouse staff, ensuring that none of them here in the United States, at least, are f- technically full-time permanent employees and therefore not eligible for benefits. That saves them a lot of money. Um, we see these costs coming out everywhere. I personally saw as we were offering more and more free shipping at one of my jobs that our health insurance became more le- more expensive and our benefits declined. Like this is this is real. We are all paying the cost of this free shipping. It's just a myth. It is interesting to see when I order something and actually have to pay full shipping on it. It's how a lot. much that is. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And we should pay for shipping. I think that we Think of shipping as an annoyance, a waste of money, like we're just getting nothing in return, but we're getting the convenience of something coming all the way to our house with no bother from us. Now, I know you're very pro small businesses. You yes. Mentioned it about yes. just now. How is it small businesses are going to save us? <laughs> I mean, I think, wow, that's a huge one, right? But I think a lot of the economic disparity, the wealth inequality in this world is really stemming from the decline of small businesses and the rise of really huge businesses. I mean, let's think about Amazon alone. Amazon has driven so many retailers out of business. Some of them weren't small. Some of them were medium size. But we've seen a massive you know, focus of our spending to one company. Gosh, I was in a meeting the other day with someone who said, well, we'll all be selling on Amazon soon. So, you know, why bother, basically? And wow, that was really depressing, right? But ultimately, when we are focusing all of our money on large corporations, we create this monopoly where they control wages and whether or not fabric recycling gets funded, whether or not we get nice clothes or plastic clothes and what happens to the clothes afterward. And they have a great amount of power when it comes to public policy, meaning that they can squash any drive we're making for a more sustainable industry. On top of that, having worked for a huge corporation, uh, it's really impossible for them to change their ways. Like as much as I would love them to, anytime a company is espousing this huge shift into sustainability, I'm really skeptical because 
truly sustainable ethical manufacturing for them would involve just completely dismantling their entire business model and starting over. And they're not going to do that. Small businesses can build things from the ground up with ethics and sustainability built in. And on top of that, they can pivot more easily because they don't have, you know, 500 stores globally that they would have to change or, you know, a hundred billion dollars in inventory that they'd have to figure out what to do with it. Like they, they have that flexibility. And furthermore, when you spend money with a small business, that money tends, tends to stay in the community. And I think that's really important to think about because if you're shopping from Amazon, you're kind of just paying shareholders a profit. So allowing them to accumulate more wealth and sending Jeff Bezos to space, which benefits none of us unless he gets stuck there. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we can only hope. Yeah. Yeah. So shop small. It feels good. I'm also wondering if shopping smaller makes us feel better about what we buy. Say I'm thinking of buying a belt and Tom makes it and he'll make it in my size in the color I want. Will I appreciate it more, keep it longer and not immediately feel that I need another two belts from Shine or somewhere? I think so. Right. Like, Having a personal connection with the item you buy and knowing the story of it, it makes it a lot harder to throw it away or pass it off to the donation bin. And I think that's really important too. Like I buy something from, you know, Shein and you're not going to have this emotional connection to it. I think it goes back to, I was illustrating people saying like, oh, don't worry. I bought this from Forever 21. I I wasn't expecting much from it. You're going to have a lot higher expectations and commitment to an item that you bought from a small business. Hmm. You mentioned the donation bin again, and uh, there's something that has been bothering me because here in Norway, we have the Salvation Army pretty much has the charity clothes scene sewn up, so to speak. Um, Now, I know that 90% of what they get every day is just sold as bulk and shipped off Mm. to some low-cost country. They don't even look at it. And I say to people that, if you want to really treat your unwanted clothes well, either sell them, give them to someone who use them, or or make sure you get rid of them to someone so they get a life. Right. Uh, but here it's just so people give it, donate it to charity, and it's like, wow, I've done an amazing thing. Now I can go out and buy something new. Yeah, it's interesting how that works, right? Because we're like, I'm a hero. And you, your head is filled with these visions of all these other people frolicking around in your unwanted clothing. And now their lives are better thanks to you putting them in this bin. You should treat yourself to something new. But in fact, here in the United States, a very, a very small portion of the clothes that are donated are ever worn by another person in the United States. There's more of a chance it will be worn by someone somewhere else in the world. And even that percentage is pretty low like it's there's the volume of clothing coming in is far too much like you said we need to do that thing where they're not allowed to make any new clothes for a few years and i think we could we could maybe even it out a bit and so you know the here in the united states the 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 donation bins the thrift stores are receiving so much product that most of it initially is immediately bailed up and sent off to someone else even the stuff that they do decide to keep in the store, they only give it about two weeks to sell. And then they pull that off the floor and sell it, send it somewhere else because 
there's just so much coming. They don't, they don't need to say, Oh, give it time. The right person will come in and get it. You know, we are just the, the rapid pace at which we are donating is breaking down that machine. You know, when people say, Oh, thrift stores, I don't know if you hear this where you live, but you know, thrift stores are becoming more expensive. And I, it's where I'm getting outpriced. I know that the first thought is because so many people are thrift shopping, prices are going up and they know that. No, a big part of it is the cost of disposing of all the excess donations. If you donate something to a thrift store and it ends up going to the landfill because it's damaged, it's stained, it's wet and moldy, uh, it's just not useful to anyone, the thrift store pays to send that to the landfill. You know, the thrift store is paying for logistics to ship these bales off to other companies who might sell it overseas. The thrift store is paying the incinerator to burn the stuff. The, inc- the thrift store is paying to send it to the industrial shredding facility. Like the volume of donations is so extreme that it's driving up prices because it's become a liability for these thrift stores and other charities. And we need to think about that too. We tend to drop it in the bin, congratulate ourselves, go shopping, move on. We never think of it again. But it's really important to remember that none of these just magically go away. And very few of them are worn by another person. And so we have to stop the cycle of shop, 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 donate, 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 shop, 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 shop again. We have to break the cycle. Interestingly, I notice here that they've started pricing things so high that they actually don't get sold at all. <laughs> That's even crazier. <laughs> I mean, I do. There are some thrifts. There's, you know, the good Goodwill is a massive presence here in the United States, um, and it's technically a not prof, not prof, not for profit company, but it's really there's a lot of sketchy behavior going on there. But they've opened these stores called Goodwill Boutiques. Where often the secondhand stuff is more expensive than buying it brand new on the store, or at least the same price. And I, I think that's pretty off-putting for a lot of people. And I wonder if they have any success there. It might be a different generation than us that sees it because Perhaps, it's, yeah. it's trendy, vintage, secondhand shopping. So yeah. maybe it works out. Maybe it does. I did notice a recent Instagram post of yours that I thought was very profound. You were writing about how bad taste is a myth. <laughs> I I will stand for this. So I I will tell you, uh, every time I post about that, I end up having to block a few people who will message me and tell me that I am an incompetent idiot of a woman who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Um, so the, that definitely gets an emotional response from people. I think what we think of as good or bad taste is really very subjective. And unfortunately, a lot of us decide that what is good taste is what we're being fed by, you know, magazines, influencers, social media, all of that. Ultimately, the people who are determining what is good taste, what should, you know, the Anna Wintours of the world, the Anna Wintours of Instagram, uh, <laughs> I want someone to make their Instagram profile say Anna Wintour of Instagram. Anyway, uh, we don't see a lot of 
diversity there. We see the tastemakers in the world of fashion, in the world of decor, of all of these worlds, tend to be wealthier. They tend to be white, uh, cisgender, uh, thin. Um, and that doesn't really, that's not fair. Why would we decide that what is good taste or bad taste is dictated by these people who aren't even, aren't even really representative of the world we live in? I mean, even if they were, we still get to choose what we like or don't like. And what you like or don't like is great. Just go with it. I think the idea of taste is so intrinsically connected to money, to spending money, to buying into trends. You know, this whole idea of chuggy. I'm sure you've heard about chuggy. Not until I read about it on your Instagram. I'm still wondering what it means. I mean, it's a whole story and I suggest everybody to Google chuggy. But essentially, you know, it's this term to describe things that are out of state, out of style, out of date. Who cares if your your clo- your skinny jeans are out of date or out of style? Do you like them? Do they make you feel good? Then keep wearing them because the idea of things being out of trend is such a fast fashion phenomenon. And it's laughable when you think about some of these trends that only last a month. If that. Right? Right. So wear what you like because you're likely to hold on to that a lot longer and enjoy it. Whereas if you say... Well, I always wear skinny jeans. They're my favorite. They feel great. But I heard they're they're chuggy, that they're bad taste now. They're out of style. I guess I'll go get these high-rise crop flares or something. And then you wear them at once and you're like, oh, I feel terrible. I look horrible. This is uncomfortable. You're going to donate those jeans and go buy something else. But that's interesting because now I'm not an expert on women's jeans, but it strikes me that there are only a limited number of styles. <laughs> it's true. Say, I'll be generous and say there's 10 variants. I don't think there can be that many. But say there's 10. Yeah. I can see you thinking. But if you just keep that first pair, except that you're chuggy for a while, it will only be another nine cycles and you're top fashion again. It's true. If this is a concern to you, just keep roll through it. It's interesting. Jeans always make me laugh. Because like you said, I'm not even sure if there are 10 styles of jeans. I was like, maybe five. Mm. Yet, you know, I'm going to tell you that... When skinny jeans became popular, it was like all the companies that sold jeans were like printing their own money because they. this was the best the denim business had been for them since probably like the 80s. They were just like, finally, we've latched onto a style that everyone buys. It was more universal than ever. It was easy to make it fit a lot of people. They just added stretch to it. The return rate was low. You could just sell. Someone would come in and buy a new pair of black skinny jeans over and over and over again. It was it was a great time to be alive. You know, we we're pumping all this money into buying more jeans so we could sell more jeans. And we were like, wow, jeans are on fire. They're like carrying the business. And then slowly, you know, we started to shift away from it a little bit. Not in an extreme way. Many, many skinny jeans are still being bought and sold every day around the world. But, you know, retailers were like, okay, we've, We've now come to rely on this big denim business and we see it falling off. What's the next gene going to be? And so it was constantly like, let's push this. I remember crop flare for a year. We were like, everybody should wear crop flare. We're going to feature it in every email. We're going to buy a bunch of it. No one bought it because 
for a lot of people, it, it didn't make sense. If you live somewhere cold, your ankles were a bit cold. Uh, if you were very tall, they were just very short. If you were short, they were very long. And just nobody, nobody was buying it. And there's so much panic over like, what will we do? How will we get more people to buy jeans? And there are times where I put on my tinfoil conspiracy theorist hat. And I'm like, did fast fashion start the idea of chuggy to force people to buy new jeans? <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, yeah. I often say to people, uh, don't beat yourself up because you buy something new because you do have a massive marketing machine working against you. Absolutely. With all, the, all the big data, they know pretty much everything about you. <laughs> so how can you possibly resist? It's a wonder we're not buying stuff all day. It's true. And that's like comes back to my argument of like, if you are passionate about change, be the foil to all of that marketing that we're being bombarded with, that your friends are being bombarded by. Post a counter narrative. You know, I think it's really, really hard. I I always tell everyone it is progress, not perfection slowly making these changes in our lives is going to have a bigger impact than deciding that today you're never buying any new clothes again, you're giving it all up, and you're changing the world, and then a month from now hating yourself because you bought a new pair of jeans. Like, we can't – I've been on this journey myself. I told myself, okay, I'm not going to buy anything for a year. What could go wrong, right? Well, a few months into it, all at once, every bra I owned just – broke like all the wire fell out of them they were i kept trying to repair them turns out it's really difficult to repair undergarments like that and i had to order some more and i remember telling my husband like oh i'm just such a failure i feel so bad about myself like i really made this promise to myself and i i can't deliver and he was like amanda it's some bras you have to have them it's it's fine like you kind of set yourself up for failure with this broad proclamation and I was like, yeah, you're you're right. I think that we have to go easy on ourselves, whether it's because we had to buy bras or because we fell for some marketing we saw on social media, and know that even being aware of that is step one towards making some really huge change. Mm. I think just calling out stuff like that yeah. and making people more aware is very important. It's very important. Now, before we, we finish off, I do want to ask you, when you were working on the circular design uh, project with the horrible orange textile, <laughs> what was the outcome of that? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, ultimately, the line was not produced. We were, we man, it was it was quite a journey. When I think about the hours of work that was spent, you know, we found a startup in California that was working seem to be on the best path with recycling fibers. And they'd sent us some swatches that we felt really great about. And they said, okay, great. Well, here's the catch. Um, it's going to be at least a year until we can produce them because we're just running into financing issues. Like we don't have the money. And I definitely think they wanted us to give them the money. But the company I was working for didn't have that. Like they were like a lot of players who are truly sustainable, truly ethical, truly trying to do their best, those companies are, I mean, they're just barely getting by because they're paying living wages, they're being really cognizant of all the decisions they make and how they have an impact. And 
it's unfortunate that the true players with integrity in that area don't have the money. And instead we have players who seem to have good intentions, but underneath the surface aren't really delivering like H&M, for example, they have all the money to make this kind of change happen. And they're not like, why isn't H&M funding this company with the fabrics that's doing fabric recycling? Somebody's already working on it. Give them some money so they can do it. I mean, that's, I have a lot of theories around that too. Um, some of them probably make me sound a little unhinged, but it it is easy when you know all of these facts to wonder why aren't the companies who really have all the money to make this change happen involved in it on any level. Could we have the top three possibly unhinged clothes horse facts about why it's not happening? <laughs> I mean, for one, because it's going to co- those those materials are going to cost more money. It's way easier to just keep selling people clothes made out of plastic bottles, which to be fair, are more expensive than brand new polyester. That's something that always depresses me to know that even recycled materials are more expensive than new. I think it's all about bottom line there. Um, I think number two, H&M doesn't truly, or any of these players, they don't truly want to change their business model. They're using sustainability, conscious collection, that kind of stuff as a marketing story. There, okay, so I have to send you a screenshot of this. I saw it come up on Twitter. Uh, I have been laughing about it all week. Um, H&M posted on LinkedIn, <laughs> not a not a website I talk about very often, but H&M had a post on LinkedIn about some s- sustainable yarn, cl- yarn collection they were working on. And an expert in sustainability commented, you know, very long comment, but basically like, this doesn't add up. If this isn't truly sustainable, here's why. It was very classic H&M greenwashing move and they got called out on it. And the H&M social media manager, we all know that they are the social media manager because when they commented on this person's response, their job title was next to their name. Just, uh, <laughs> this is so ridiculous. Replied with the emoji of a person yawning with the hand over their mouth. Wow. <laughs> and I think that's it. I think, like, who knows what happened to that person when they went into work on Monday. But I think that that really speaks to all of these conspiracies that are basically like, these companies don't want it to really change. They know that they have to dismantle their entire business to truly be ethical and sustainable. Notice how none of them, no matter how often they're coming at us with miracle fibers and loot machines, are ever talking about the people who make the clothes and what they're paying them and the circumstances they work under. If they were truly on board with sustainability, uh, they would know that half of the UN Sustainable Growth Initiatives involve people and lifting them out of poverty and giving them, you know, access to healthcare and food and water and all these things. H&M doesn't care about that. None of these fast fashion companies do. And so I guess the number three of my wild conspiracy theories is just, they don't care. That's it. You know, I don't think those were wild at all. I'm (laughs) firmly behind you on all three. (laughs) I mean, I could go deeper where it's big oil and all these other things, but yes. Big polyester, yeah. Yeah, big polyester. I mean, I I just want to say that, like, the reason so many things we buy come in plastic is because 
the oil industry needed a new revenue stream as cars became more efficient with gas, right? And they kind of tapped out the the number of airplanes and cars we could have in the world. You know, it's like, okay, what's next? We need to continue growing. Okay, let's push plastic packaging. And synthetic fabrics has been incredible for that industry because it was sort of something they didn't even see coming. It's like a bonus. As cars, we shift more into, you know, electric cars and people carpooling and taking public transportation, uh, synthetic fabrics have been there to swoop in and continue driving sales for them. What do you think of a, a company like um, like Patagonia who promote themselves as, well, pretty much the saviour of the planet, then using so much recycled polyester in their fleeces? It's hard for me, right? I I know that people love Patagonia, and I do believe that Patagonia, Patagonia truly has the best intentions. Um, they've definitely said like, hey, for example, some stuff that they were selling may have been made with weaker forced labor. And they were the only retailer who said, hey, yeah, we think that might have happened. And here's what we're doing. Everybody else was like, nope, we're not involved. It wasn't us. And so I do give Patagonia a lot of credit. But once again, that polyester probably is coming from plastic bottles. Um, I spoke with someone who is a specialist in waste management and the waste streams. And her opinion as an expert in that area, so I'm just regurgitating what she told me, is that we shouldn't be taking, diverting items from one waste stream into a new future waste stream. So we shouldn't be saying plastic bottles are now clothing because we already have a solution for plastic bottles. We don't need to divert them into clothing. And what it does is give people sort of like subconsciously a license to buy even more plastic water bottles when they know they might turn into leggings or fleece, which I get. Um, On top of that, she told me that something very concerning is that, you know, in order to recycle plastic bottles into clothing, well, to recycle plastic bottles in general, they have to be cleaned and hand sorted. You know, the caps need to be pulled off, all these things. Every time a person has to touch something, we're looking at more expense, right? So it makes recycled fabrics a lot more expensive because there's a lot more transport and sorting and machine work and all of that. So it's already more expensive. But because so many of these fast fashion retailers are so sensitive to price, they always, every penny, nickel, dime, it matters because they're selling so much of this on sale. That uh, they were finding that a lot of these fabric makers who were making the fabrics out of recycled plastic bottles were actually buying brand new plastic bottles and just melting them down and turning them into the clothing. And because the supply chain for that kind of material is so hidden, just like everything else in the fashion industry, that like there's no guarantee that what you bought made out of recycled plastic is really made out of plastic that had ever been used by a human before. And I think that's just such a sad story and so indicative of so much that we're being, we're dealing with and, you know, uncovering every day. I have heard the same about using brand new bottles. And when you talk about how much work is needed to take used ones before they can be recycled. It makes sense, I guess. Yeah. A sad, a sad sense. A sad sense, yes, totally. Now, I think I've uh, 
reached our time, Amanda. Uh, is there anything you'd like to uh, mention in closing? Anything you'd like to plug? Talk about <laughs> your podcast? Um, yeah, I would just say, uh, please, if you enjoyed listening to me yammer on, uh, come and check out Close Horse Podcast. Uh, it's available on Apple, Spotify, Google, all the streaming platforms. Or you can go to CloseHorsePodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram at CloseHorsePodcast. I'm assuming that since you just listened to this, you're not the kind of person who says, oh, I'm not a person who listens to podcasts. So just go give it a try. <laughs> and don't send Amanda any mean messages. But if you do, know that I have a good argument back. <laughs> okay, Amanda, this was wonderful. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Nick. And uh, bye-bye. Okay, bye. And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Amanda McCarthy of Clothes Horse for being a wonderful guest this week. You can find Amanda on the web at clotheshorsepodcast.com or on Instagram as clotheshorsepodcast. Check it out. She's a great follow and uh, I definitely support her work. If you'd like to find uh, me on Instagram, I'm Aldristad. If you'd like to follow the podcast on Instagram, it's Garmology Podcast. You can also find my blog at welldressedad.com. If you'd like to support the pod, and I very much appreciate you doing so, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash Garmology. There's a link in the bio as well. Thanks a lot. I do like a cup of coffee. There's a new episode next week. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye.